Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Friday, October 2nd. We begin with news that President Donald Trump and the First Lady have tested positive for COVID-19. We speak with Global Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini for details on what this means with the U.S. federal election just 32 days away. Next, it's our weekly conversation with Mayor Nahed Nenshi. We talked to the mayor about the recent committee vote to move further down the road towards lowering residential speed limits in our city. Then we look at the return of grocery hoarding during the pandemic. We speak with a food economist to ask if there's any possibility of seeing shortages at the supermarket. And finally, ahead of this weekend's CIBC Run for the Cure, we speak with spokesperson and cancer survivor Claire Coleman. We hear Claire's personal story and how this year's virtual run will be a little different. Seven oh nine on the morning news. Yes, the big story of the day, Donald Trump, President Donald Trump tweeted in the middle of the night that he and the First Lady have coronavirus. What does this mean for the U.S. presidential election moving forward? Joining us is Reggie Cicchini, Global Washington correspondent. Good morning to you, Reggie. Good morning. Well, first of all, this did come down very late last night from the president himself on social media. I'm wondering if we have any update on the severity of the symptoms that President Donald Trump and First Lady Melania have. So uh, actually, within the last, uh, I would say, 30 minutes, the New York Times has come out uh, from their reporters who are uh, close with the president's campaign and close within the White House saying that Trump did have minor symptoms. He was lethargic at a fundraiser in Bedminster, New Jersey last night. Uh, and, and, and if that's the case, that means that this story likely goes back further than just a couple of hours or a day because the president had time to develop these symptoms uh, before he uh, before he was tested uh, and tested positive. So there are new questions being raised as to how far back contact tracing is going to have to go. And at 74 years old, Reggie, Donald Trump is in that prime category to really suffer severe consequences potentially from this virus. So what do they do going forward? And and really the big question, I guess, is does anyone have the power to cancel an upcoming election if Donald Trump does get really sick? Well, I mean, so to unpack that, uh, number one, the president's age is problematic here, not only because we've heard that from health experts, because the president himself has said that the older population is more vulnerable to this disease uh, in his push to try and say younger people are not impacted in his second push to get people back to school. So his age and his health, along with his weight, uh, are working against him right now, now that he's presented symptoms and tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, it comes at an inopportune time, to say the least, given we are 32 days away from the election. It's likely not going to impact the date of the election. You can't imagine the president is going to uh, try and cancel this, but also the power to change an election date is vested with the Congress uh, and the Congress themselves, especially the House, is not going to look at a president who has treated the COVID-19 crisis uh, with less severity than it has deserved uh, by saying, well, look, you you knew what the consequences were. You don't wear masks. You, you've called this a hoax. We can't change the election date because of that. And let's uh, back it up as far as the news that did come out late last night. Earlier, I think it was early, uh, late last evening, we had word that Hope Hicks, one of the president's top aides, had uh, been, uh, you know, uh, positive uh, with with the testing of COVID-19. And uh, Hope uh, Hicks is somebody who has been around a lot of people in the White House. So this could kind of, to a certain extent, be the tip of the iceberg for cases in the White House and within the Republican Party. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, Hope Hicks is now at least the fourth person inside the White House to contract COVID-19. So we may have uh, the executive building acting as a bit of a super spreader here. Uh, she was in contact with at least 21 high member, uh, high level members of the administration, including the president, most or if not all of the president's family at the debate. Uh, and then uh, leading members uh, inside the Republican Party, like the chief of staff, like Jason Miller from the campaign, like Kayleigh McEnany, the press secretary, who we are now hearing that this diagnosis w was made yesterday. It was attempted to be concealed by the White House, by the administration. But then Kayleigh McEnany came out and did a full press briefing yesterday with at least a dozen uh, uh, journalists inside the Brady briefing room, which put all of those journalists at risk as well here. So there are there are just so many questions being asked as to what the, the what the game plan was inside the White House that allowed this to get as far as it did. And I'm also reading this morning, Reggie, that uh, the New York Times reporting Vice President Mike Pence and his wife have tested negative now for the virus. So does this just throw more importance on the the next debate to come up, the vice presidential debate and and how important those two people would be as we look at potentially presidents that are 77 and 74 years old? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, the, the vice president's office did tweet out that both he and the second lady uh, have tested negative. So, too, have the offices of several leading members in the administration, including Steve Mnuchin and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. But for this debate coming up, this is going to show that there uh, there is a significance to the office of the vice president. They're often just kind of left to the side and, and people look at them as second uh, in line uh, of succession. But in a situation like this, where President Trump, if he were to become incapacitated, Mike Pence would be elevated to the role of acting president. There is a lot that rides on the line uh, of these debates uh, because you see with somebody uh, of an advanced age like Joe Biden, having somebody like Kamala Harris next to him, if mm -hmm. something were to happen, you have somebody who is able to step in, who is younger, who could potentially be uh, uh, more fit. Uh, and and it, it, it just goes to show that there are a lot of questions uh, that oftentimes just simply get pushed off to the side, right. but oftentimes do come up in these situations. Reggie, there's been, you know, uh, news circulating that uh, Democratic candidate Joe Biden is going to be tested. Do we know anything about the timing of that test and, and just how close he would have been in proximity physically to Donald Trump on the debate Tuesday night? So there was no uh, closeness between them physically. They were distanced by those podiums on stage, and that was really the only contact they had with each other and, and including uh, their teams with each other. Uh, that said, Joe Biden did tweet out this morning uh, kind of thoughts and prayers for recovery for the president and for the first lady. We know that the Biden team says that Joe Biden will be getting a test later today, but we're also learning that. Biden campaign officials say that they have yet to actually be contacted by anybody inside the administration to say that there has been a positive case in the president, in, in the second lady, uh, in the first lady, rather, despite the fact that these two men were on stage. And we already know from health experts that coronavirus can pass in droplets in the air potentially further than six feet. So mm -hmm. th the fact that they're being kept out of the loop right now is important. Reggie, what's the schedule coming up now? Where Next presidential debate, vice presidential debate, where do they kind of line up in terms of as Donald Trump now is, is in quarantine? Yeah, I mean, look, the vice presidential debate will likely still go forward next week in Salt Lake City. Uh, the second presidential debate, which was to take place in Miami the following week, that's questionable now because the president will be in some kind of quarantine for potentially 14 days unless he decides to break that and say if he gets a negative test, he comes out of quarantine before that. Uh, but 
realistically, the debate is one thing. The president is losing vital time on the ground right now in key swing states, 32 days away from an election, not being able to get out there and hold these rallies, potentially, which is what caused this in the first place. Uh, this is problematic for a president who's trailing in national polls, but who's also now trailing Joe Biden in internal GOP polls. Reggie, do we have any, you know, uh, as far as comparison to anything like this in, the, say, the past 50 years with a sitting president and uh, in a health scare like this? Well, I mean, look, all presidents at some point in their presidency oftentimes uh, have to vest the power to the vice president uh, because they're going for some mild operation. They need to go for a test. It happened with George W. Bush uh, in 1981. Ronald Reagan, uh, during the assassination attempt on him when he was shot, he was incapacitated for a short time. So the power was vested into the vice president. This all came about following uh, the assassination of JFK when the 25th Amendment was put in place to a put a, a presidential line of succession in place. But this is really the first time in at least 30 years that a president has been inflicted with such an ailment that they potentially could be taken uh, out of duty, which is why there is a concerted effort right now to figure out some way to have President Trump seen today, whether it's a national address, whether it's a picture, whether it's something to show that he is still fit for duty. A bombshell announcement for sure. We'll be following this. Thanks for your time this morning, Reggie. Thank you. Have a great weekend. That's Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent. Coming up to 717, time now for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. You will find a home that fits your lifestyle. Well, keep in mind, Center Street is shut down between 30th Avenue and 34th Avenue in the northeast following a serious collision. You're detoured for a couple of blocks through the Highland Park community, but if you want to avoid it altogether, grab Edmonton Trailer 4th Street, both moving smoothly down towards 16th Avenue. Taking a look at Deerfoot Trail, still running at only nine minutes from Stony Trail down towards Memorial. We are starting to see some building volume, though, on northbound Deerfoot through the southeast. Currently sitting at about 15 minutes from Seton Boulevard up towards 17th Avenue. Uh, northbound McLeod Trail, that's a 16-minute drive from Highway 22X all the way up to Cemetery Hill. You are dealing with a couple of construction projects still, that big one by 22X. There's uh, lane realignments and speed restrictions in place there. And then you've also got that bridge work north of Heritage Drive where traffic's down to two lanes in both directions. 14th Street, though, through the southwest end, that's moving smoothly up to Glenmore, as is Glenmore Trail itself. Eastbound lane still running at only nine minutes from Searcy Trail out to Deerfoot. Want football? The Zone has more live football than anyone else. Exclusive Premier League, exclusive UEFA Champions League, all the NFL. The Zone, start your free trial today at DAZN.com. Up in the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Brady Howard. You see, I am the mayor of Mars Cafe. Every Friday, we have a chance to check in with the mayor. And today, we'll be discussing the reduction of speed limits, the opening of the Southwest Ring Road, and more. And he joins us now. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. Good morning, folks. Thank you for being with us. Happy Friday to you. Let's let's start with um, the committee voting to go ahead and bring forward a plan to potentially drop residential speeds from 50 to 40 kilometers per hour. I can let you know our text line lit up on the subject yesterday. So uh, can you again kind of give people the main reasoning behind this plan? You know, when um, we had our first meeting after the 2017 election, I asked uh, all of the new councillors, well, all of the councillors, the new ones and the ones who are returning, you know, what was the number one thing that you heard about when you were at the doors? And, you know, we, it was the, we were talking about the arena. We were talking about all kinds of things. We were talking about taxes. The number one thing every one of them heard unanimously, the number one thing they heard was the problem of speeding on residential roads and residential communities. And at that time, in 2017, they said, you know, we've got to do something about this, as many other cities have to try and curb uh, the amount of speeding on these residential roads. And it was unanimous. 
So uh, administration went out and did some work uh, thinking about the right the right way to go. We certainly know that, uh, you know, we know a lot about exponential curves now with COVID, but it's a reverse exponential curve. You know, if you unfortunately hit somebody going 50 kilometers an hour, the fatality rate can be 90%. If you hit somebody going 30 kilometers an hour, almost nobody dies. And so the idea was, let's think about what we can do in these residential neighborhoods. And I will tell you, with COVID, with so many people working at home, uh, the number of calls that we've been getting from folks who go, now that I sit at home all day and I see how people are speeding down my residential street, we got to do something. So what committee, uh, after much debate, committee did actually a pretty mild version of what a lot of other cities have done. What they did was they said, we should go from 50 to 40 kilometers an hour on non-collector residential roads. So that means not on sort of the boulevards and drives in neighborhoods, but on the cul-de-sacs and the closes and the crescents and all of that, where frankly, the average speed is already well below 40 kilometers an hour anyway. So this will really only impact people who are really speeding on those roads. Now, the interesting question is that committee chose not to go to the collector road. So I live on a collector road. I live in a residential neighborhood, but I live on a street that's a snow route that has a bus route. Uh, on it. Mm-hmm. So my commute will be untouched. Uh, anyone else who lives in my neighborhood, there's actually a very snazzy tool on the city website where you can see how much, how many minutes this will add to your commute from one uh, location to another. Anyone who lives in my neighborhood uh, in the farthest reaches uh, of my neighborhood will see about a 20 to 25 second increase in their commute. Huh. Um, but if that leads to higher safety, uh, that's something that committee thought was a good idea. Still talking roads, Mayor, and uh, I am a creature of habit, but I broke that habit this morning. I uh, took a different route to work. I took Sutina Trail, and let me tell you, I was impressed. Mm. Uh, Let's talk about what kind of a game changer this is for people who live in the South and Southwest. Well, I'm really interested to ask you, Andy. I don't know where where you were coming from, but how did it help? Well, well, it probably took maybe shaved off about a minute. I live down south near South Center Mall. I took Anderson Road as far west as I could and and got on the uh, trail there. But for me, it might have been a little bit longer because I just want to make sure I didn't miss my turnoff because I've never (laughs) been on this road before. Um, But I was just super impressed. Once you get on that and you see 4.5K to Glenmore, you realize how quick of a tool it's going to be. No traffic lights, no anything else to slow you down. Yeah, so I got the chance to drive it after opening it yesterday as well. Um, And... It was great. Um, I took it right uh, the whole length of it from uh, south of Anderson up to Sarcy. Uh, it was really good. Um, but, you know, I think what's important here is a couple things. Number one is that road has been under planning for, I kid you not, 68 years. Uh, you think some construction projects are long. Uh, this one is a generation long, which is about half of the history of Calgary. Um, but, of course, it's a blink of an eye in the history of the Sutina Nation. And what really this means to me is, yes, absolutely, it's a win for Calgarians. It's a win for people in southwest Calgary who've been waiting for this link, for this road for decades. But I'm really interested in the win for the Sutina Nation. You know, this was a tough choice for the nation to make. Um, it was difficult for many members of the nation and many elders to say, you know what, we're going to enter into this agreement. We're going to cede some of our hard-fought land on our nation uh, and build this out, not just to give people in Calgary a win, but also to spur economic development for the nation. And it was a big risk for them, and, uh, and I hope that it pays off. You know, right now it's symbolized by a big Costco, um, yeah. but that's just the beginning of 
what I hope is really a very uh, positive future for the young people uh, in the nation. So it sounds a bit cheesy, but I hope the road is actually a bridge between Calgary and the Satina Nation, and it will lead to benefits uh, for all of us. And I was just really excited to play my part over the last 10 years, which is a little part, uh, but in helping build that bridge and also this road. I think it is going to be a fantastic partnership. Can we ask you to hang on a couple of minutes, Mayor? We'll bring you right back. Perfect. It's 817. We'll bring the mayor back on in just a moment. Lots more to talk about. And it is time right now for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Enjoy spectacular views of the city skyline and the Rocky Mountains. on the morning news continuing our conversation with mayor nahed nenshi uh thanks for hanging on with us here mayor no happy to be here well this morning the biggest news not just uh, well around the world is that president donald trump has tested positive for the coronavirus as did the first lady so this underscores that we still have to be vigilant and closer to home at the foothills hospital the outbreak we've seen um when you look at this and when you compare us to a, a like city like edmonton are you still happy with how we're doing in the city of calgary with our battle against covid19 I mean, we're doing all right, and of course, all of us wish uh, the President uh, and the First Lady well, as well as all of the other hundreds of thousands of people uh, infected with coronavirus uh, today in the United States. But we're doing okay, but I will tell you, I still get a little nervous. You know, when we look at what's happening in Ontario and Quebec, and Quebec, of course, they've closed the restaurants again, um, we're not doing anything particularly different. Uh, than they've done in these areas. So I just, I, you know, I, I know I'm a broken record for almost seven months now, but I need to remind people that it's all about discipline. You know, discipline is the best vaccine. Sure. And we still live uh, in a pandemic. It is a dangerous pandemic, as we've seen people are dying uh, at Foothills Hospital. And uh, it's impacting younger people a lot now. And even if you don't die, you get pretty sick. Uh, and you just don't want that for two weeks, and we don't know what the long-term effects are. So it's important to avoid getting this thing. I mean, it sounds obvious, but it's important to avoid it. And, you know, as we're going into festival time, you know, I think fall holiday time, I should say, I think some of us have forgotten the whole concept of the cohort or the bubble, and it's important to remember that. But even if the kids are at school, that doesn't mean the bubble is completely burst. So for Thanksgiving coming up uh, next week, uh, it, it really is important to stay in your bubble, to stay in your cohort for the sure. people who are inside your home. So this is probably not the year to have a big Thanksgiving event. We know that big family gatherings are one of the areas where the virus is really spreading. It is certainly not the year 
to bring grandma and grandpa in um, to Thanksgiving dinner. And as tough as that is, it's just another sacrifice uh, that we're being asked to make. But nothing changes. Three things matter. Good hygiene, wash your hands, cough into your sleeve, keep your physical distance as best you can indoors and out at least six feet and a half apart and wear a mask. We've got to remain vigilant. It's very true. Thank you so much for joining us. Always appreciate your time. Have a great weekend. Thank you. The one thing I will say, though, Dr. Hinshaw did not cancel Halloween. Yay. We're not <laughs> doing it either. We'll have some tips and tricks for safe trick-or-treating. But again, not the year for Halloween pub crawls, not the year for big parties. And Andy. stay within your, are you ready for it? Stay within your bubble. But, but one, one last quick question. What are you dressing as? Well, obviously, this year there's only one costume. You have to go as Chief Tom Sampson. Okay, next week when we talk to you, we'll talk about what that costume looks like. Thank you so much, Mayor. Appreciate your time. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Calgary Mayor Nahed Nenshi. I'm not a hoarder. I just like to collect things. I don't have jewelry or diamonds. Coming up to 6.09 on the morning news, many shoppers have begun hoarding groceries, toilet paper, and other goods, again, over fears of a second wave of COVID-19 lockdowns. Will store shelves go bare again, or will suppliers be able to handle the surge? With all the details, we're joined by a food economist uh, with U of G's Department of Food, Michael Von Massow. Good morning to you, Michael. Good morning. Uh, let's talk about this and break it down. Uh, something that you've been quoted as uh, saying is that these shortages are demand-based shortages rather than supply-based. So if you can break that down for us. Well, demand-based shortages, we have supply chains that, that run on a just-in-time system, and they depend on forecasts. It doesn't mean demand needs to be level, but demand needs to be predictable. So when we have these uh, extraordinary events, these these difficult-to-predict events, we sometimes have surges in demand that, that the system needs some time to catch up to. We're not out of paper. Uh, we're not out of, uh, we're, you know, we weren't out of wheat when flour was short. Mm-hmm. What happens is the system falls behind a bit and then takes a, f- a few days to catch up. Those sorts of demand-based shortages are, are much are much less concerning than a supply-based shortage. You know, if we if we have a drought in Western Canada, and and the wheat uh, crop is is horrible, then we have a long-term issue. We have to find other sources to make flour. Demand-based means the system can catch up. The product is there. It's just managing the manufacturing, the logistics, and the ordering to get it there. And Michael, we are seeing and hearing it already. I'm seeing it on just even on social media and my group of people that, you know, toilet paper is starting to get short. A paper towel, people are having a hard time finding that. We've never really been able to get lots of bleach wipes since the start of this pandemic. There's been a shortage of that, it seems. So is it just that we we lose our minds because we fear that at some point these things are not going to be available to us at all? Well, I mean... Toilet paper is a perfect example. Toilet paper uh, is not experiencing a surge in demand. Uh, What's happening is people are inferring shortages on toilet paper from some potential short-term shortages of paper towel. If you think, uh, you know, we're seeing numbers go up, uh, we're, we're getting a bit more anxious, we're sanitizing more, kids are back to school, some people are expanding their bubbles. So the demand for paper towel is going up, particularly, as you said, that we uh, we continue to work at catching up on things like uh, like wipes uh, and so 
it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. Demand goes up, the system falls behind for a day or two, people see the shelves aren't completely full, although I still see sh as product on the shelves. They buy lots because they, they want to make sure they have it. Mm -hmm. uh, that makes it look like it's short again, so they buy even more. So we've, we've got this sort of vicious cycle started. Uh, we're not short of paper, as I said before. Uh, we had this unanticipated spike in demand that the system will catch up. And if we remain calm, buy what we need rather than buying extra, mm -hmm. then the, the system will perform uh, well and, and, and allow us to have the products we need. And if you don't believe me, look back at, at March and April when we saw the same sort of things and the system caught up. Right. Michael, you're a food economist, so this uh, question might come out of left field, but I'm wondering, uh, you mentioned, it's, to me, it seems like almost a domino effect. I see it's not there, so automatically I need to stock up and get extra. Could part of this have to be blamed on social media? In that, and that's where I'm seeing a lot of it. People posting, I was at the grocery store and there was no toilet yeah. paper. You think that w would have been a difference well, I, 20 years ago? I, well, I, th I think for sure that the speed with which uh, news uh, travels the, you know, the anecdotal shortages, you know, we might see a shortage at one store because someone uh, under-ordered for that day, right? We, these shortages may be as much as a couple of hours till the new stock comes in, but then people talk about it and, and it becomes amplified through social media. I think without a doubt that happens. But we're also seeing, you know, it's good that we're having conversations like this, but the news is covering it uh, and, and, and then... People have more anxiety. These, 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 the, the, the ease with which we communicate uh, and, and the speed with which things get out really amplifies these issues. And as human beings these days, we're so used to being able to get whatever we want whenever we want it. And I think maybe that just, you know, is where that fear comes in. Oh, my gosh, I, I can't, I might not be able to get that. What? That's unheard <laughs> well, of these days. Well, that's, you're exactly right. You know, the... the the, the, the strength of our supply chains really speaks to the fact that we're used to having abundant inventory all the time. We're used to seeing store shelves full all the time. And in a time of heightened anxiety anyway, you know, there's enough other things going on in the world that, that our anxiety is going up anyway, that, that for things like sanitizing, which is very emotional, we don't want to get sick, and things like food, we don't want to run out of food, those become even more susceptible to these sort of hoarding and panic buying situations because the because we are anxious. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to scare people when I ask you this question because if you tell us uh, you know whatever item you mention, people might be running out to the stores for. It. <laughs> but at this point, demand based. Has there been any concern of any supply based shortages uh, whatsoever in North America? Uh, we, you know, in the food and, and cleaning supplies, I haven't heard of any supply-based shortage. You know, in, in construction, I've heard some things where parts are coming from factories that were shut down in China, as an example, and as they ramp up again, supplies are coming. But even when, and I'll use an example right there, uh, even when the, the, uh, the beef plant had to close down for a couple of weeks uh, south of Calgary there, product came from other places in North America in our integrated market. So while farmers had some pain, consumers still had access to products. So no, I, you know, we haven't really had any indication of any sort of supply-based shortages 
uh, in the last six months at all. I wonder if we'll hear from the Prime Minister about this, because we certainly did at the beginning of this pandemic and, and him reassuring Canadians that, as you said, the supply chain was flowing freely. The you know truckers were able to go between the U.S. and Canada to make sure that we did have all the products we need. And that's something we just need to remind people. Don't, don't lose your minds and go out and stock up on toilet paper again. Well, as I said, I think conversations like the one we're having, I think others during their daily briefing uh, have an opportunity to say, relax, you know, you know uh, we're, we're, we're managing and we have robust and resilient supply chains that have performed really, really well already. And, and if you don't believe me and if you don't believe the Prime Minister and others who are undoubtedly going to say it, uh, look back at our experience over the last six months and how quickly we caught up again. Uh, and in fact, saw toilet paper on special over the summer when inventories were big. Uh, things are going to be okay. Mm-hmm. One last quick question here, Michael, and I just uh, inquiring minds want to know: <laughs> Are you a twelve pack two ply kind of guy or a twenty four pack <laughs> single ply? Uh, my wife complains. Uh, I like plush uh, okay. toilet paper, so uh, I, I am, I am a bit of a toilet paper snob. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. Well, I know Michael for a fact. There's lots on the shelves right now, so you're you're good. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. That's Michael Van Massau, who is a food economist in the U of G's Department of Food. 617, time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Only one traffic light from the mountains. Through the northeast this morning, Center Street is shut down in both directions at 32nd Avenue following a serious collision. No word yet on when that will reopen, so the detour will be through the Highland Park area, just a couple of blocks. Or you can grab 4th Street or Edmonton Trail to bypass that area. We are seeing light volume on Deerfoot Trail right now, a southbound coming off the QE2 all the way down to Memorial. Northbound lanes out of the southeast also sitting delay-free from Stony Trail up to 17th Avenue. And McLeod Trail still an 18-minute drive from Highway 22X into downtown. The grand opening sale at Leon's new store in Cross Iron is on now. Shop specials on furniture and mattresses in both Calgary locations, plus save three times the GST. Leon's.ca Up in the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Brady Howard. One in eight women are expected to develop breast cancer during her lifetime. And every day in Canada, 75 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer. Well, Breast Cancer Awareness Month is underway. And this weekend, it's Calgary's 24th annual CIBC Run for the Cure, the virtual edition. Joining us now is this year's local CIBC Run for the Cure survivor spokesperson, Claire Coleman. Good morning, Claire. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we'll talk sure. about the, the virtual run on Saturday in just a moment, but can you tell us a little bit about your story, your journey, Claire? Sure. So I, I was diagnosed, unfortunately, in March of 2019. I was 38 years old at the time. Uh, no family history, no genetic indication. Um, so it obviously came as, as quite a shock to me. Um, I was I was lucky enough to get to get um, checked out and, and to discover the breast cancer early. Um, early enough, I should say, that I, I was um, able to make, to be in remission now, to make a, a full recovery. Um, I did have to undergo um, chemotherapy, surgery, radiation, so I had quite quite a year in 2019. Um, <clears throat> but I've, you know, I'm feeling good today, which I'm, I'm very thankful for. Fantastic. The, the run for the cure is... Uh developed and made for people like you in, in your situation, Claire. And mm-hmm. I know that I lived in a neighborhood where they would 
be run normally down south. Yeah. This, this is virtual. So tell us how this is going to look and how people can get involved for the awareness and the fundraising. So, the, yeah, the run is still on. It's just virtual, as you mentioned. Um, so I myself am just doing a run in my neighborhood with my family. Um, I, I have a team that I've created that I've fundraised for, and the CIBC web, uh, Run for the Cure website is, is, is up and active and accepting donations. Um, so it's really up to, you know, individuals to sort of mark the occasion um, on their own, um, but there's still a great, um, a great need out there. Obviously, right? I mean, you're the ultimate example of why fundraising is so very important still to this day, Claire. So do folks just go online and you, you can run anytime, anywhere, as long as you just kind of keep track of your yep, distance? Exactly, exactly. There's a, there's a Run for the Cure app, the Run for the Cure app. Um, there's going to be a live stream event on Sunday morning um, as well. All the information is, is on the website. And then you're able to donate there directly. Or if, if anyone has a friend or family, um, maybe been affected or maybe created their own team. You can search um, for different teams or, or people or just make a donation on your own. Fantastic. It is. I'm just uh, looking at the website. It is support.cancer.ca and you can go on and sign up, get all the information you need and do it at your own pace. That's the part that I love this year. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about it, Claire. Sure. Thank you so much. That is Claire Coleman, the 2020 Hope Speaker for the CIBC Run for the Cure Calgary. And yes, They've gone virtual.